Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by my friends and co-hosts, Hannah Abrams and Tony Brew. Hi, guys. Hey, Avi. Hey. So today we're going to discuss thirst. And Tony, before we get into pathophysiology of this, can you give us a sense for what prompted you to look into this topic? Absolutely. Um, so, so there's at least two things. So first, you know, where I work, I, I care for a lot of patients um, with the diagnosis of primary polydipsia. And I've often wondered why these patients continue to drink water, despite the fact that they have a low serum sodium, a low serum osmolarity. I, I would have assumed that you know, if your sodium is 120, 125, the signal to be thirsty and to drink would be completely shut off. And that doesn't happen with these patients. And that that confused me. And then the second observation was more basic and and one that I've had for even longer than I've had about patients with polydipsia. And it's, you know, why do I feel thirsty immediately upon eating a potato chip? And why after just taking a sip of water, am I immediately satiated from the thirst that prompted me to go get a glass of water? Like that, I had explanations in my mind that I thought made sense, but I never had actually looked into it. And when I did, the the answers were actually pretty fascinating. Yeah, I've been thinking about this ever since you told us that this was going to be your question for this episode. And I'm so excited to find out why. Yeah, we'll definitely get there. But I don't know, I feel like maybe before we talk about uh, why we get thirsty and and why patients with primary polydipsia continue to feel thirsty, it might even be valuable to just ask like a basic question, like why does anyone drink liquids at all? So I don't know, Avi, why, why do you drink <laughs> whatever it is that you drink? And then the same question for <laughs> Hannah. We are mostly water-based organisms. <laughs> And uh, our cells are full of water, and we, uh, our blood is full of water, and we need to kind of. But that's why you drink. Is that why you drink coffee in the morning? Yeah, speak for yourself, Avi. I'm a mostly caffeine-based organism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's water in the coffee. Yeah, carbon and caffeine. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing is that. Thirst is one of the only reasons we drink, right? I think if we if we only drank uh, out of pure thirst, um, we probably wouldn't consume a lot of what, of what we consume. So, like, I I generally have four things that I drink. Um, I drink coffee, I drink water, I drink carbonated water, which really is just water, and then I drink gin. And I drink each of these things for a different reason, right? Some of them because of the the mental effects, some for the physiologic effects, from some because of the social norms or because I think it's healthy. And then there's certainly anticipatory reasons. And we'll talk a little bit more in a bit about what I mean by anticipatory reasons. So it could be that patients with primary polydipsia are drinking not because they're thirsty, but because of these other reasons. But you know, tonight's episode is really about thirst. So um, we'll probably want to get there. Yeah. So why, why do we get thirsty? How does that happen? Thirst is just a conscious need for water. And um, there, there are two, at least two main drivers of thirst. And I think one is probably familiar to most of us. Uh, and it's one that we've probably, uh, that immediately comes to mind, and that's increased osmolarity. So classically, um, the onset of thirst was considered to have a threshold of around 295 milliosms per liter. And this is about 10 to 15 milliosms uh, per liter above where ADH starts to get released. Um, Because ADH secretion usually starts at around 280. 
Now, more recent studies suggest that uh, the osmotic threshold is actually closer to ADH release, and as the serum osmolarity increases, the intensity of thirst increases. So, but how does that work? Like, why would an increase in osmolarity turn into a sen- sensation of thirst? There's, I don't know, there seems to be a gap for me there. Like, why would that, why would our bodies work that way? Right. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's a, a perfect question. This increase in osmolarity is detected by two small structures in the forebrain. Uh, one is called the subfornical organ or the SFO, and the other is the organum or organum vasculosum of the lamina terminalis, the OVLT. So these two structures, the SFO and the OVLT, are actually located outside the blood brain barrier. Uh, so they have access to the blood circulation. And then specialized neurons in the SFO and OVLT are activated by increases in blood osmolarity. But that doesn't really answer your question, Avi. Like, how does that actually happen? And this I find really cool. So when serum osmolarity increases, water is going to leave the cell, right? I think that makes sense to us. And what that does is it leads to intracellular dehydration. And the neurons in the SFO and the OVLT detect this change in cell volume, uh, this basically contraction of the cell via stretch-sensitive ion channels that are embedded in the plasma membranes. So as the cell shrinks, because water is leaving them to go out to where it's more uh, hyperosmolar, um, the the cells shrink and these stretch-sensitive ion channels are activated. I thought that was super cool. So as you can see, in, in the increase in serum osmolarity um, that we've been talking about here results in intracellular volume depletion. And so the thirst that results is really kind of a mechanism to preserve intracellular volume. That, that's it's, it's, in many ways its main aim. Wow. Okay. So basically more osms in the vasculature. So water goes toward it osmotically and then the cells of the SFO and the OVLT shrink and then there's ion channels in the cell membranes of those cells that say like whoa now whoa now we need more water <laughs> yeah they're drink, like wow. drink 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 exactly like oh my gosh i'm so dehydrated <laughs> i'm so thirsty that, i mean that's basically what happens right and i usually think about volume depletion as like an extracellular thing but the osmolarity mm-hmm. And the thirst that we that we're feeling is a is a trigger to help replenish intracellular volume depletion, and that was kind of a cool concept. Okay, so but you kind of started by talking about patients with primary polydipsia, who often are hyponatremic. So presumably they don't have adequate serum osms to be triggering this mechanism. So why what's the mechanism for thirst there if it's not SFO and OVLT? Yeah, and, and I think that's a great question, and it gets to the, like what's the other main mechanism of thirst. So I I'll often ask members of my team like, all right, guys, you know, increased osmolarity triggers thirst, but there's a also a molecule that leads to thirst, and I'll say, hey, what do you guys think it is? And and the, probably the most common response is ADH, and that's actually what I had assumed for a long time because it. ADH clearly has a role in preserving normal osmolarity, so why wouldn't it trigger thirst? But it isn't ADH. ADH does not trigger thirst. And the molecule that does trigger thirst actually has a slightly different aim than the increased osmolarity trigger. And the aim of this molecule is to preserve extracellular volume. 
So with that as a clue, it kind of makes sense that the molecule is angiotensin 2. So angiotensin 2 is the other main trigger of thirst. And as with osmolarity, the SFO is the principal site in the brain where angiotensin 2 acts to make us thirsty. And there is, you know, there's a, a bunch of support, um, supporting evidence for this. And some of the, probably the most compelling is they've done studies in rats where they directly inject angiotensin 2 right into the SFO of rats. Uh, and when they do that, the, the rats just drink like mad. They just, they go crazy with the water. Um, and that doesn't prove this, of course, but it's, I, I would say it's, it's pretty strongly suggestive. Mm. So you started this discussion with talking about the kind of conundrum of primary polydipsia and why those patients continue to drink. It seems like there's not a physiologic trigger that's making them drink. So can we blame angiotensin two for that excessive drinking? Right. We, yeah, because we can't blame um, an increased serum osmolarity, right? So if if they are indicating that they're thirsty, you you would assume that maybe this other trigger, angiotensin two, is is actually what's going on. And I'll tell you, um, despite my best efforts, I couldn't find clear evidence, you know, supporting that link. But there's some there there are some um, observations that that I think make it possible. That's probably the strongest statement I could make. Um, so let me offer some of those observations. So the first is that even though the mechanism of schizophrenia is clearly multifactorial, the dopamine hypothesis uh, remains a leading explanatory model where you know increases in dopamine lead to the, uh, the some of the symptoms uh, of schizophrenia. The second thing is that high levels of dopamine are clearly associated with increased drinking. And in fact, if you um, take pay, uh, rats, again, and give them lesions of the dopaminergic nigrostriatal pathway, they become completely adipsic. They, they just completely stop drinking. And then the third observation is that D2 ag antagonists like haloperidol, if you inject them intracranially, they completely block angiotensin 2 induced drinking. And that's kind of where this connection maybe between dopamine and angiotensin 2 comes in. So the way I put it together and the way some have put it together is that there's some connection between dopamine and angiotensin 2 and exactly how they overlap isn't quite clear, but the hypothesis is that high levels of dopamine somehow interact with angiotensin 2 leading to angiotensin 2 mediated um, thirst and mediated polydipsia. But I'll be totally honest, I don't think that is proved at all. And Tony, what, so that, that is really cool. And that, that is not, that, that's a really cool way to tie together with the pathophysiology or that's thought, you know, that with the dopaminergic hypothesis, yeah, and yeah. especially in schizophrenia, if I remember correctly, antipsychotic medications can also have like anticholinergic effects and can cause primary like dry mouth. Yes. And I wonder like if that, cause obviously a lot, a lot of those patients are on antipsychotics. Is that playing a role as well? Just that kind of the, that that dry mouth sensation. Absolutely, I think that's a great point, and that's definitely raised uh, in some of the the papers on this topic as another potential cause. But I'll say that the cases of polydipsia in in patients with schizophrenia predate the introduction of typical antipsychotics. So there are cases dating mm -hmm. back to the early 1900s. So it's clear that it's not all mediated by uh, the typical antipsychotics. So whether or not it's this connection between dopamine and angiotensin 2, like I'll say we don't have um, uh, like a, a great data on that. So what do we know? 
what is like what kind of data is there out there? Yeah, so the the data is um, it comes in a couple different flavors. One is just asking patients with primary polydipsia, like, are you thirsty? Like, what's driving you to drink? And some, depending on the study you look at, some between between twenty to forty percent of the patients offer thirst as the primary reason that they're drinking. So it's not a hundred percent, and there are undoubtedly other uh, causes of of the excess of drinking, but. It, you know, if if these patients have hyponatremia, it like should really be zero. So that's one form of evidence. And then, as we'll talk about in a in a moment, there's some evidence based on medications that we've used in the treatment of primary polydipsia. So before we move on to kind of answering why we feel immediately satisfied after sipping water, is there anything else that you want to offer on the topic? Yeah, I guess I, sh- I should have mentioned it a moment ago because I was alluding to it. Yeah, you know, the more I read about this, the more I became like fascinated by the topic. And and one thing that came to my mind is, okay, you know, maybe there's medications that we could use to you know interfere with the thirst that we've been talking about. And so I'll just I'll ask you, Avi, if you, if you had to like you know, prescribe a drug that you probably have prescribed to other patients that might help to mitigate some of what we've been talking about, what, what would you reach for? Well, you'd probably want something that blocks the effects of angiotensin two. So I would think that an angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitor would probably be the uh, the drug you'd go for. Yeah, either that or an ARB, right? In in both of those have actually been tried um, in patients who have excess of thirst, particularly uh, patients of excess of thirst that's associated with high levels of angiotensin II. And the classic one is patients with chronic kidney disease. And, and it works. You have, you know, there's studies showing that captopril really blunts the thirst associated with high uh, angiotensin II levels in, in CKD. But the literature in primary polydipsia is mixed. Um, and I, I would say it's far for, from conclusive that um, these medications are efficacious um, for, for those patients. Wow. Okay. So that was sort of a whirlwind tour through why thirst happens and then why people who are experiencing primary polydipsia are still thirsty sometimes or don't quite have blunting of that mechanism. But going back to your other question from the beginning, I I have been wondering about this for like a week since you told us this was going to be the topic. Why do I feel less thirsty as soon as I drink water if my osmolarity isn't going to change? Well, well, right. So one one explanation is that it has immediately changed, right? So it it could be that as soon as you drink water, that that water, you know, within seconds drops your serum osmolarity and the cells in the SFO and the OVLT like plump back up and like you stop feeling thirsty. So um, I guess the question that I'd ask you, Hannah just making it up, like how long do you actually think it takes for the water that you ingest to like get into the bloodstream and like dilute your serum osmolarity down? Because I, I'm not even sure what I would have answered to this if you had asked me before I started reading on it. Yeah, I, um, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but a, a wild guess would be, I don't know, like 15 to 30 minutes to sort of like transfuse across the membranes and get transited through the esophagus. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is it's not going to be like <laughs> one second, right? And the literature I found on this suggested it takes a, a probably 10 minutes or more for ingested water to be fully absorbed into the bloodstream and to do decrease osmolarity. 
But I think we all know from personal experience that that we don't need to drink for 10 minutes in order for our thirst to go away. Like we feel a pretty immediate sense of relief. And there are some skeptics out there who always demand data. And there is actually data showing that if you infuse 5% saline uh, and increase osmolarity, you know, thirst unsurprisingly goes up. Uh, But the same data shows that as soon as you allow those people to drink, the thirst plummets despite the fact that the, the osmolarity remains elevated. So what's, what's going on there? Like, why is it immediate? So it, it comes back to this, this SFO, this uh, subfornical organ, because not only does it react to serum osmolarity and angiotensin 2, it also receives direct inputs from whatever it is that we're placing in our mouth during eating and drinking. And the SFO uses that information about the composition of the food we eat to predict what's going to happen to our future blood osmolarity. And then it changes our behavior accordingly by telling our brain to think different things. That's awesome. So like, okay, if I am about to eat a bag of chips, my SFO is like, Hannah, also please drink water or else like you will become dangerously hyperosmolar. Or like similarly, if, if I'm about to like drink a lot of water, does my brain also tell me like, you should be eating some potato chips with it. Well, it's it, it it that probably happens too. Yeah, that happens too. But it's more. This is more that the um, the placement of these things, either the water or the potato chip, into your mouth. That's where those direct connections to the SFO are. And then there is the conscious thought of I'm about to eat a salty thing that probably promotes some degree of this too. I didn't I didn't actually read about that <laughs> separate issue. I was thinking more. <laughs> I take a glug of water and wow, I feel immediately better. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) What was coming to mind for me there, and I have no idea why, was like Admiral Akbar from Star Wars. Start, you know, it's a trap. It's a trap. It's a thirst trap. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, like drink now. It's a trap. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Just one potato chip will do that. Okay, that is uh, insane. And I will absolutely think about this the next time that I either eat a potato chip or drink water. Um, it's so cool, like the way that it, it can sense that. Yeah, I don't know. Tony, do you have take-home points from the, all of this? Yeah, just a couple. So um, as we've been saying, there's really two main drivers of thirst. All right, so the first is increased osmolarity, which is really a, a sensor for intracellular volume depletion. And then angiotensin II, which is really a sensor for extracellular volume depletion. Um, But there's also this anticipatory thirst that actually bypasses either of these mechanisms using information about what we're eating and drinking. So that's number one. Number two, information about osmolarity, angiotensin II levels, and the composition of what we eat are sensed by the subfornical organ, this SFO. And there's actually other structures too, but the SFO is the one that sort of repeatedly came up in, in the reading I did. In primary polydipsia, I think I'll just leave it by saying that it, there's probably a complex interplay between dopamine, angiotensin, and thirst, and the exact mechanism of that interrelatedness um, remains opaque to me, uh, but it, it likely is not opaque to, uh, to others. And there may be a role for ACE inhibitors in some forms of thirst, like the thirst associated with really high angiotensin II levels in CKD. But the data for its use in conditions like primary polydipsia is conflicting. So I I wouldn't call it the standard of care uh, right now for those patients. 
That's so, it's so cool, Tony. I mean, this is something that yeah. like all of us do all day, every day. <laughs> and like you said at the beginning, there's this social component to it as well, right? Like we drink different things for different reasons, but at the core of it is this really fundamental kind of osmolar sensing that's happening that is just like, and is even anticipating, like looking at like what's going to happen that our, our bodies are just constantly monitoring. It's, it's so, it's so fascinating. The brain is, it's, it's remarkable how it's able to do that. My, my desire to learn about this topic has been quenched. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash Curious Clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye. Bye. Stay thirsty, friends. Bye.